Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Um, Green Left is very happy to be joined today by journalist and author Anthony Lewinstein about his new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, published by Verso. My name is Jacob Antwerfer and I'll be hosting this interview today. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this program today is being broadcast to you on the stolen land of the Wandry of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land um, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Anthony Lewinstein is an award-winning investigative journalist who has authored several books, including Disaster Capitalism, Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs, and My in Israel Question, a number of which um, we have previously reviewed and covered for Green Left. Anthony is also an outspoken supporter of Palestine, who has written regularly for various publications on the issue of Palestine. Additionally, he is also the co-founder of Independent Australian Jewish Voices. One thing I'd like to add before we start is um, Green Left is a vital social change project that amplifies the voices of resistance against the daily injustices caused by profit-driven capitalism. If you support the work we do, consider becoming a supporter. You can become one for as little as $5 a month by going on our website at greenleft.org.au forward slash support. All right, so um, start off, Anthony. Your new book, The Palestine Laboratory, makes the case that Israel's military-industrial complex uses the occupied Palestinian territories as a testing ground for weaponry and surveillance technology um, that they then export around the world um, to you know, various democracies. Um, can you give us an overview of how this drives the occupation of Palestine? One of the key aspects of Israel's occupation, which is now the longest in modern times, it's 56 years and counting since 1967, although many argue, including me, that an occupation of sorts began in 1948, which was when Israel's uh, country was born. But I look particularly in the book, although I look at post-1948, things really take off after 1967 when Israel took control of the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. And one of the things that I look at is how over those decades, now more than half a century, Israel has developed huge amounts of tools and technologies to control Palestinians. So in the modern era, I'm talking about drones, spyware, uh, biometric tools, facial recognition technology, all these tools of repression, which are trialed and tested on Palestinians and used to control them, to monitor where they go, who they speak to, uh, their relationships. And so the book is partly obviously about that, but it then shows how Israel, both as a government and as private companies, then sell those tools and technologies to the world as battle-tested. That's their expression, that it's been tested first and it works, in inverted commas, on Palestinians. And many other states, both democracies and dictatorships, find that very attractive because they themselves also want to repress their own people, dissidents, human rights workers, activists, whoever it may be. So that's kind of why I call it the Palestine Laboratory. 
And your book kind of makes the kind of case, you know, through this relationship, Israel exports its surveillance equipment and armaments to a large range of countries, including those with very problematic human rights records. You know, some of the examples that are kind of pointed out are Rwanda, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, and also India, um, which has obviously been the subject for a a complex range of authoritarian sort of um, politics. Um, And I guess, what can you tell us in terms of your book, what because you go through um, a lot of investigative journalism, what can you tell us about these findings in terms of those complex webs of relationships internationally? Israel will sell weapons to pretty much anybody. And I think it's important to note that, of course, a lot of other nations do as well. I mean, the US remains, for example, the world's biggest arms dealer. It sells about 40% of the weapons around the world, and Israel is 10th. And in the top 10, you often have France and the UK and Russia. So Israel's not the only nation selling weapons. The difference is that Israel is a permanently occupying nation where it has occupied Palestinians in their backyard for over half a century, which gives them essentially a captive market to trial and test new technologies of repression. Now, the nations you just mentioned there, Saudi and India and others, are, well, some of them are nominally democracies. India claims to be a democracy, although I would question that definition. Saudi Arabia certainly is not. Rwanda certainly is not. And these are states over the years that Israel often has either sold weapons to, but also inspired. And when I talk about inspiration, I'm talking particularly about one of the reasons why I wrote the book was not just as an investigative journalist, I wanted to look into this issue and share it with the readers of the world, but also to say it's a warning that Israel remains now in the 21st century, arguably the most influential ethno-nationalist state on the planet, a nation that proudly discriminates against anyone who's not Jewish. And for many other nations, and India being the most notorious example, Israel is an inspiration. Now, what India is doing under Modi in an authoritarian way is not happening because of Israel. India is doing it for its own Hindu fundamentalist ideology. But what you have got in the last years, as I show in the book extensively, is both nations are inspiring each other. They're inspiring each other in terms of how they treat, for example, how Israel treats Palestinians and India, how India is treating its Muslim minority, roughly 200 million people. And I compare it in many ways to the way Israel used to relate to apartheid South Africa back in the day. And I make that comparison because although apartheid South Africa is over, it finished in 1994. Both nations, yes, there was a defense relationship, but it was also ideological. They were ideologically aligned. They respected and admired each other, how they are repressing each other's population, either Palestinians or black South Africans. And India and Israel, to me, is the modern example of that, where India is now the world's biggest nation, the world's biggest population, the world's biggest self-described democracy. And it's turning increasingly into a Hindu fundamentalist state. And this is happening at a time where the West, the US, Australia and others are mostly turning a blind eye to that because India is not China. So the book looks at, yes, the Israeli arms industry and how it gets sold around the world to repressive and non-democratic states, but also to say we need to be really aware that more and more countries around the world look to Israel as a model and an inspiration and want to copy it in their own way, not to have a Jewish state, but to have a Hindu fundamentalist state or Christian state or Muslim state, whatever it may be. And that that inspiration is something I think we should be disturbed about. 
want to kind of add um, an extra kind of question. Um, basically, for, um, builds on what you're kind of talking about, because we've been talking about um, Rwanda, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia and India. But what about how does this kind of link with um, the United States and its military industrial complex, uh, especially given that uh, the United States is obviously, you know, one of the biggest kind of supporters of Israel, um, especially in terms of military aid, you know, and also, you know, the US is also one of those um countries that probably makes some of the biggest profits in terms of the military industrial complex. So kind of want to hear about the sort of connections between that. So Israel and America are close. Of course, that's true. And I think it's pretty inarguable that if US support suddenly disappeared tomorrow, Israel would either not exist or would be in jeopardy. And I'm, not, I'm talking about here, not just in a financial sense, but protecting Israel and international forums, military support, the knowledge that any potential perceived enemy of Israel would know that if they attack Israel, America would come to its aid. So the US-Israel relationship is incredibly close, but it's also, of course, toxic. And really over successive decades, regardless of who's in the White House, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden, the fact is when, since Joe Biden's been in office for two years, nothing has changed <laughs> since Trump. And I say that because... The military aid still continues. The uh, 110% supporting what Israel does. Yes, Joe Biden as administration expressed some concern about settlements, but it's it's cheap, it, cheap words. I mean, just last week, Netanyahu was meeting, the Prime Minister of Israel was meeting Biden at the sidelines of the UN. There was a General Assembly meeting in, in New York. And you really get a sense there of that kind of relationship, that there was real no criticism aired, there was blind support on both sides, there was an expression of hope that there would be a deal struck soon between Israel, Saudi Arabia and the US that all sides are currently working on, which I think would be disastrous for the Palestinians if that happens because the Palestinians are already really arguably have really had so few friends in the world. They have civil society as friends. I'm talking about as states. And the Arab countries have essentially abandoned them. There are some states that still give money to Gaza and others. That's true, Qatar particularly. But in general, the Arab states are now in bed with Israel. <laughs> That's the reality. And if Saudi, which is one of the biggest Arab states, also gets into bed with Israel, which they're kind of already unofficial friends, but if they make that relationship formal, which is what apparently three, these three states are wanting to do. I think it's going to make the situation with Palestinians even worse. So, yes, the U.S.-Israel relationship is key, which is why I think I'm encouraged by the fact that within the U.S. there is growing dissent and questioning of that blind support, but within the wider community and also the Jewish community. And that um, naturally gets us to our next question, which is your book kind of makes obviously one of the prospects, I guess, for kind of hope is that there is a fact um, that public support for Israel internationally is increasingly being challenged, even within from within the Jewish community internationally. And I guess, what are your some of your comments on this and how does it link with some of the issues that you are raising in your book? One of the things I talk about in the book, and I use the term Jewish insurgency, and what I mean by that is within the Jewish community in America, which obviously is the biggest Jewish community in the world outside of Israel. I mean, most of the Jewish population in the world is really in two countries, the US and Israel. Of course, there are Jews in Australia and 
I'm Jewish myself, Europe, etc. Obviously, but the vast bulk of the Jews in the world, there's about 15 million of us, are in two countries now. <laughs> the US is roughly half and Israel. So the Jewish community in America, of course, is central to how US foreign policy operates towards Israel and Palestine. And you've had in the last 10 years, and I talk about this a bit in the book, but I've written about it elsewhere too, a real um, generational shift where, of course, I'm generalizing, it's not quite as neat as this, but in general, huge numbers of young American Jews are rebelling. They don't accept the narrative that their parents or grandparents said. They're very critical of what Israel's doing. They're putting pressure on their synagogues, their Jewish communities, their leaders, politicians. Now, often you don't see that at the level of, say, a Joe Biden. That's true. But within the Democratic Party, for example, I'm not a big supporter of Democrats, I can assure you, there is a real debate going on. You don't hear that at the senior levels the Joe Biden, the Kamala Harris level. But there is a massive debate going on. Within the Jewish community itself, there are, there's, a real, there's a split. There's an undeniable generational split going on. And I welcome that so people can, if they're curious, groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, which were started by younger American Jews. And, I mean, non-Jews can be involved as well, of course, but it's mostly for Jewish people who are critical of Israel, who don't accept the narrative, who are outrage that American tax dollars is going towards funding an apartheid state. So that does encourage me. And that's happening also, by the way, not just in the US. It happens here as well, not to the same extent in Australia, but also in the UK, parts of Europe. So again, I don't want to exaggerate the fact that all the Jewish communities suddenly become anti-Zionist. That would not be true. But there is a fundamental shift happening And I'm encouraged by that because without massive Jewish diaspora support, there would be no Israel. Well, certainly would be no Israel like it is today. There would not be an endless occupying state. So the Jewish community rising up and being far more critical, which hopefully impacts both media coverage and political action, is vital. And I hope that continues, which it will, because Israeli action itself is getting much more extreme and far right. The, next, the other kind of theme that you kind of raise in your book in terms of the Israel's um, military industrial complex is there's actually a, a sort of relationship between um, the likes of big tech, you know, like Google, Facebook, Twitter. And I guess, especially given in light of the a lot, um, the fact that the likes of Facebook, Twitter, um, increasingly censors um, Palestinian voices or any voices that are kind of critical um, of Palest- uh, of of Israel. So I want to hear some of your comments of that, especially in terms of the, technolo- the technological links that are being made. So one of the things I look at in the book is obviously focusing on Israel-Palestine, which I'll get to in a second. But in the broader context, it's important for people to realise that what I discovered in this reporting, there's a whole chapter in the book about this, is that in so many issues around the world, conflicts where there is a powerful entity versus a smaller one, or for example, a fighting force that is maybe against or critical of the US or the US State Department line, there's a good chance they'll be censored or shadow banned on those various platforms and also TikTok, the one you didn't mention. And what became very clear is that so many of the so-called rules that are used by these companies in terms of how they manage issues, how they allow comments to exist on their platforms or not, are hugely informed by the US State Department line. I'm not saying the US State Department's putting a gun to their head. I'm saying that they are informed by a US State Department worldview. 
And when it comes to Israel-Palestine, I found huge amounts of Palestinian voices, Palestinian accounts, either being censored entirely, shadow banned. There is a huge amount of Israeli government pressure on these companies to tow a certain line. I mean, on one hand, I look at this issue and I say this in the book. On the one hand, you can say it's been quite successful that many Palestinians are being censored. Their voices are not being heard. That's clearly outrageous. And I oppose that. On the other hand, I actually don't think all that censorship is working. And what I mean by that is, despite all the censorship, public opinion is shifting. And it's not shifting, I would argue, because all these people in the world are suddenly reading the New York Times or the mainstream press. I think social media has played a massive role, a positive role. And again, I don't idealize social social media like everything is for lots of awful and lots of good. It's One can't generalize. But I think social media has played a really important role, in fact, in giving Palestinians a, an amazing global voice, which I did not have so much before. And that, I think, has played out into how public opinion is shifting on this issue so people can living in sydney or melbourne or new york or london or wherever they may live see and hear a palestinian in gaza in their own voice see their own images see their own worldview understand their perspective and those views are often amplified in various other media so i go pretty deep into the book into how the israeli government is putting massive and constant pressure on facebook twitter uh, youtube which obviously is owned by uh, google and TikTok to censor, to tow a certain narrative line. And I think on the one hand, it's successful, but on the other hand, I think it's not actually hugely influencing people's understanding of the conflict. If anything, it's making more people more sympathetic to the Palestinian perspective. One thing I've observed is in the context of um, some of, the, uh, of your book, there have been a number of kind of grassroots campaigns popping up that are kind of exposing everyday institutional links to um, Israeli arms companies. There was one example being the Melbourne RMIT University's partnership with Israeli arms company Elbit Systems. And I guess, what can you kind of tell us about some of these campaigns that are kind of popping up, but also how does your kind of book provide those, would your book, how does your book provide sort of resources for those kind of important campaigning efforts? My book came out a few months ago in Australia and also in the US and the UK, and it'll be published hopefully next year in various other translated editions, Arabic, Italian, uh, Korean and uh, Turkish. And the reason I mention that is that it's been really important for me that the book is a resource. It's used by people. I mean, it can be just used by readers who are interested in the subject, of course, but it can also be used as a resource for people to be aware of not just the current reality of Israeli repressive technology being sold to insane numbers of countries around the world. In my research, over 130, and that's the majority of nations on the planet, but also historically that in the last 50, 60, 70 years, Israel has been complicit in some of the worst human rights abuses in the world. It's much more known of the US role. If you ask the average person on the left, they will say, well, yes, we know the US role in, for example, the overthrow in Chile in 1973, that was just the 50th anniversary, or the role of the US in many dirty wars in Latin and South America. Some people know that history. What they less, know less about is the Israeli involvement in that, which was not often as much, although sometimes more, but it was present. They often sold weapons, gave, gave training to awful repressive regimes. 
And I mention all this because, to me, I want to be able to say that the book is a resource to get people to maybe try to hold people to account in various countries' courts of law, that it also allows people to put pressure on various governments to not sign deals with, say, Elbert. Elbert is Israel's biggest arms company. And you mentioned before the RMIT University has, has made a shameful deal a few years ago with RMIT, as has the Victorian government under Dan Andrews, the Premier, to establish a centre to develop essentially uh, tools to fight bushfires. Now, what I mean by that is the idea of using potentially Elbert drones to monitor um, areas of land where there could be a bushfire risk. Now, as someone who lives in Australia, I've got no issue with modern technology being used to fight bushfires. That makes logical sense. However, however, the idea that Elbert, a company with its with blood on its hands, it's basically worked around the world to support dictatorship and autocracy and violence, both in Palestine and elsewhere, they are the worst partner imaginable. Those are the kind of partners that should not be signing deals. So I hope that something like BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanction, does grow in Australia. It needs to. There needs to be much more pressure put on the current Australian government to cut ties militarily at the very least with Israel. So I hope that the book is a is kind of a uh, a useful tool for that. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. I guess, do you have any final comments that you would like to finish on, including on how people can purchase your book? So I'd say the book is, you mentioned in the beginning, Jake, but the book is uh, came out in the US and UK with Verso, but actually in Australia and New Zealand it came out with Scribe, Scribe Publishing. So if people want to buy the book, which I hope they do, they could go into most bookshops, should be available, they could find online, they can find more information about my work just on my website, antilowenstein.com. I'm on most of the social media platforms. People can find me there. So, no, I'd encourage people to read it, share it. If, you're in the, if you can only borrow it from a library, borrow it, read it, share the, spread the word. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.